you can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and we will look this morning at verses 1 through 13, and uh, we, we are at the halfway point, uh, and as I said a few weeks ago, I'm not uh, 100% sure how long the rest of it's going to take us, uh, but in reality, it really doesn't matter um, because it's good, at least I think so. So Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 um, the title this morning is, is our theme, and uh, you may think back to January, maybe you won't think back to January, and you can remember we talked about this theme uh, on the first Sunday of the year, uh, just this idea of Jesus only and what that looks like in our lives and how it should impact our lives, and this is actually um, the passage that the thought came to my mind from, where uh, after the, the voice from heaven spoke and uh, Peter and James and John looked around and they saw no man save Jesus only with themselves. And that thought just kind of crept into my heart. And uh, just uh, I hope the, the theme this year has been a help to you as well. But that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. And as I pray, I'd encourage you to pray that God would just speak to our hearts as he sees fit today. God, we do thank you uh, again for your goodness to us. We thank you for Christ, um, the sacrifice for our sins. We thank you for the spirit who indwells us, God, and enables us to live a life uh, that brings glory to your name. God, we thank you for the time that we can gather today, and we do pray that it would be profitable. God, I, I do pray that where we're distracted in our hearts and minds right now, that you would calm us, that you would redirect us, that you would refocus us uh, to see your word and to see the Christ of your word. God, I, I do pray this morning that, that we would glean something from this that would indeed change our lives. God, I know there's nothing that I can say um, that will impress minds or hearts. But God, when you speak, may we listen. May we be in awe. May we humble ourselves before you, understanding that you have a desire for us to grow and to learn from this passage. And God, I pray that that desire would be a reality as we submit ourselves to your word. So do what we cannot do, God, and that's change our lives to look more like your son, Jesus. And again, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You ever find yourself distracted? You mean well. You're striving to focus. You're diligently trying. But for some reason, you just simply cannot stay on task. This happens at our house almost every night when it comes to bedtime. And it happens mainly with the youngest of the Frost children. Uh, Charlotte can become distracted by anything. Uh, seeing a coat hanger can take her mind to some vacation we've been on, and she'll just sit there daydreaming for what seems like hours because her mind is so easily distracted. Well, truthfully, if we're honest, all of us probably face that at times. We know that we have something to do. We know that we have something that needs to get done, and yet we just can't bring our minds to complete the task. One of the ways or areas or places that I like to see or, or watch people's distractedness is when you're, you're boarding an airplane. Now, I'm not talking about the pilots. They should not be distracted, but the people in the cabin, you know when you get in the plane and they're getting ready to uh, take away, pull away from the gate, the, the flight attendants come around and they say, all right, we're going to do the, the flight safety instructions, Right? And if you've ever flown, uh, I think it's Southwest, they have decided to go to great lengths to try to capture people's attention. Why? Because everybody's distracted. 
people are looking at their phones one last time to send that final text or to, to make communication through an email or to take one more selfie to post or organizing their snacks for the long flight ahead. And the stewardess or the flight attendants up front are, are basically putting on a song and dance to try to get people to pay attention, and yet people still will not focus. Even the most serious people in the world find themselves distracted at times. Truthfully, I would say that there's probably even some here this morning that have come in distracted. Your hearts and your minds are running all over the place. You're thinking through what is next. You're tempted to play on your phone. But friends, can we understand something this morning? That though the messenger may not hold your attention, the one the message is about should hold your attention. As we dive into Mark chapter 9 today and we see this passage unfold of the transfiguration of Christ, we have to understand in part the transfiguration took place to minimize the distractions in the lives of the disciples. Jesus could see that their hearts were were not focused on him, their eyes were not always focused on him, even their words were not always focused on him. And so the transfiguration stood for them as a time where God the Father would speak from heaven one more time and say, this is my beloved son, hear him. If we think backwards in the ministry of Christ, there was another occasion where this took place, and this was at the baptism of Jesus. At the start of his ministry, God the Father spoke from heaven again and said, this is my beloved son. And the desire of the Father is that we would focus on the son, and in focusing on the son, our lives will look like the life of Jesus Christ. And yet so many places in our lives where we become distracted, if we really focus on those areas, we'll find that we're very far from Christ, even though that may be difficult for us to admit. So the scene before us is an exciting one. Jesus had just spent some time teaching the disciples on the cost of following him. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And this came on the heels of Peter being rebuked and Jesus calling Peter Satan. But before that, what is it that Peter said? You, Jesus, are the Christ the Son of the living God. And so as we see the connection or the flow of those passages, we'll see that Jesus understood their eyes were being opened, but their hearts were not fully mature yet. They were growing in their understanding, but they had not gotten to the place where Jesus wanted them to get. And friend, can we admit today that we are in that very same place? We may be looking in the right direction, but at times our hearts are so distracted that it keeps us from following Jesus in the way that he desires and deserves to be followed. And when we don't follow him in the way that he has prescribed to us, the reality is we're following something else. Now, at the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus went into this discourse on um, finding your life and losing your life. And Jesus made this statement in the end of chapter 8 and verse 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those were harsh words by Jesus. 
They, they were sharp words, and he again was seeking to get the attention of the disciples so that they would understand that there is one that deserves to be followed. There is one that deserves to be worshipped. There is one that, that deserves us giving our lives to, and his name was and still is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this morning as we jump into Mark chapter 9, I pray that our hearts would not be distracted. And if right now you are distracted, I pray that you would stop in this moment and say, God, take the distractions away so I can see the fullness and the beauty and the glory of Christ. For when I make that my focus, as the hymn writer says, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Verse number one of chapter nine is again interesting. And um, some say that, that verse one should really be with the passage that comes before it that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. But I think the transition from eight to nine is intentional. And verse one of chapter nine really goes along well with uh, verses two through 13 uh, as you connect them together and as you study them together. And verse one again says this, and he said unto them, verily I say unto you that there be some of them which stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now this statement of Christ is is a statement that would have caught the disciples' attention, right? There's some of you that are not going to see death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, what does this mean? Well, we can use scripture to interpret interpret scripture, and my best understanding, or maybe best guess, is that the glory or the kingdom coming in power is referring to the transfiguration that's going to take place in a few minutes. Others have made a guess that it's talking about the, uh, the, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Certainly that would be the, the kingdom of God coming in power. Uh, some say it's talking of Acts 2 uh, at Pentecost when the Spirit came and indwelt those believers. Certainly that is another demonstration of the kingdom coming in power. Some say that it's just the, the, the forward or steady movement of the expansion of the kingdom as the authority of Christ or God is, is taking a hold of uh, the lives of those that give themselves to him. Again, another plausible example or, or possibility that, that Jesus could be speaking of here. But again, I hold to the idea that what Jesus is talking about, the coming of the kingdom of God in power, is referring to the transfiguration that's going to take place. If you disagree with me, that's fine. You read 12 commentaries and you'll get 13 different answers on what's happening in this passage. But I do believe it's talking about the transfiguration because of the specific things that happen down the road. And so as Jesus was speaking, he says, Verily, or listen up, guys, surely, truly, there are some of you that stand here which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, if you're the disciples, you're thinking, this is it. This is why we have followed him. The minds of the disciples would likely be thinking towards the corrupt Roman government that was in play and in power during that time. And then they would be thinking about the positions they would attain as they continued to follow Christ. And they're thinking in their minds, oh, this is good. This is going to be wonderful. This is going to be a military or political takeover where we get positions that we would never have the opportunity to have if Christ did not set up his kingdom here and now. If you think of one of the disciples in particular, Simon the Zealot, he was probably very excited at this idea of the kingdom of God coming in power. Simon the Zealot would have been one who was opposed to the corrupt government 
And not just with his words, but with his actions. He would have been one of the original freedom fighters, one of those who was trying to to free the people from the oppressive Roman government in that day. And you have to understand, Rome was oppressive, very oppressive. And the lives that they lived under Roman rule were very difficult. And so to think of an earthly freedom would be something that they desired greatly. I I don't think we get this sometimes because we live in a country with such great freedoms. But you talk to somebody who lives in a third world country, a communist country, their desire for freedom is unrivaled. To, To be able to do what they want, when they want, how they want is something that they could never imagine. And so for Jesus to say that that the kingdom of God was coming in power, it first would have set their hearts on fire with excitement, thinking about what was going to be as Christ set up an earthly kingdom to overthrow Rome. So it was exciting, but it was also concerning, because what does Jesus say? There will be some of you here that shall not taste death until the kingdom comes in power. And so what are they thinking also in their minds? Who's going to make it and who's not? Who am I going to team up with in this group of 12 guys to ensure that I get to advance to the next stage? As I was thinking through this passage, it seemed very Hunger Games-ish in my mind. Anybody else get that picture? Like, I've got to make it to the next stage, so what can I do to ensure that I get there? And so their hearts were distracted. As Christ talked about a kingdom, as he's talked about power, their minds went to political or, or military. Their minds went to, am I going to survive or am I not going to survive? And so Christ was setting them up for what they would receive six days down the road. Christ didn't come to have a political or a military campaign. But rather, he came to die for the spiritual battle. He came to give his life as a ransom for many so that all who will put their faith and trust in him will have true freedom, not just in a moment or in a lifetime, but for eternity. True freedom that no man can strip away. True freedom that exists even if you live in a place where there is not physical or political freedom. And so as Christ was setting the disciples up to receive the truth that he was going to give them, Certainly, as he did always, he did it in a masterful way that hopefully would have got their attention and kept their focus. We know distraction is never good. It leads to wayward walking. It leads to you hitting the rumble strips on the interstate. It leads to danger or mistakes or even disasters. And so as Christ is thinking about the future of his disciples... He wanted to give them something that would cement this thought that he was indeed the Christ in the very depths of their heart. And I believe that we need this thought cemented in our hearts as well, that Jesus is the Christ. You see, so many of us understand that in our minds. We could rehearse time and time again that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I ask you today, I ask myself today, is that reality planted deep in our heart? Because we all understand we can know something in our minds and still become very distracted. But when that is the theme of our lives or the driving force behind everything that we do, we have a greater chance of staying on course and following the Savior who deserves to be followed. The big idea this morning is this. The transfiguration serves as a reminder that Christ deserves our complete attention and devotion. A very simple thought. 
But I hope as we go through the word of God this morning that it would be cemented in our hearts that Christ deserves these things, not just when we feel like it, not when we're in a good place, but each and every day of our lives. The first thing we see in verses 2 through 13 is a display of glory. I'm sorry, in verses 2 through 4, a display of glory. Jesus goes on to say, thinking about what he just told them, that there are some that were standing there that shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God with power. Verse 2, after six days, Jesus takes with him or taketh with him Peter, James, and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. After six days, I wonder if there was a lot of silence in those six days as Jesus had said, hey, some of you aren't going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming in power. There was likely a lot of contemplation on their minds. They're all probably pointing a a finger at Peter and saying, well, we know he's going to die because of what Christ just called him uh, a few verses ago or a few days ago. But as they're walking, as they're thinking, as they're listening, as they're watching, certainly their minds are trying to be wrapped around this idea of what Jesus gave them in in a shrouded way in verse number one. They didn't know exactly what he was speaking of, But don't you agree they all wanted to be a part of it? Nobody likes to be left out. Nobody wanted to be the one that was left behind. And so in their minds, they're thinking about how they can be a part of this thing that Jesus had just described. After six days, Jesus took uh, Peter and James and John apart, and he leads them up into a high mountain. Most people think this was Mount Hermon or or, uh, one of the other mountains in the, the Caesarea area, and as, as uh, Jesus took them up the mountain, they climbed to a very high peak. Now, in this mountaintop, it was so high that there would oftentimes be snow even in an off-season. And so as we talk about the whiteness of Christ's garment, have you ever seen a, a, a house that had white vinyl siding on it, and then it snows, and you realize how dirty the house is compared to the snow? And so as the whiteness of Christ's garment was made visible to the disciples as we're going to see it was showing them the immense purity it was whiter than any fuller any any dyer of clothes or or somebody who washed clothes could get them jesus was was pure perfect and purified before the disciples in this moment well mark tells us very much in an anticlimactic way he says that as they made it to the top of the mountain jesus was transfigured before them Don't you think there'd be a little more like lead up on this great event that's going to happen? Okay, Peter, James, and John, sit down and buckle up because you guys are going to see something incredible. But no, as Peter related to Mark, all Mark has to write is that we got to the top of the mountain and Jesus was transfigured. Now, what does that mean? Thankfully, we're given a little bit of insight. But understand this, the words that the Bible gives us to describe this moment could never accurately describe. The beauty and the purity and the holiness that the disciples saw in that moment. They got a taste on that day of what we will experience and enjoy and partake in for eternity. Not because of who we are, but because of who our Savior is. So they made it to the top of the mountain. 
And Christ was transfigured before them. The Bible says that his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. Matthew tells us that his, his body was also glowing. His face was glowing. He was magnified. He, he, was, he was put on display, so to speak, not in a cheap way, but in a holy way. So that the hearts of Peter and James and John could begin to grasp a little more who this man before them truly was. The Bible says that as they were there, Elias or Elijah and Moses were there, and they were talking with Jesus. Incredible. What an opportunity for Peter and James and John to have been taken apart. We know that they were the inner circle. They were the leader of the leaders, so to speak. They, they were the ones that Jesus did invest in a little more heavily because of the roles that they would fill later on down the line. He, he poured into them in a special way. And this is one of those occasions where that pouring into took place. And so they get to the top of the mountain and Jesus' body begins to glow. His, his garments are, are white as snow, whiter than snow. And there appears unto them uh, Elijah and Moses and the disciples in some way, in some, uh, some form, were in awe of the things that were taking place before them. We know that this was an impactful time in their lives because Peter writes about it later in uh, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this mount which came from heaven we heard when we were with him. Where? In the holy mount. And so this demonstration of the glory of Christ stuck in the hearts and the minds of the disciples as they made their way through many dangerous toils and snares. This, this vivid picture of Christ being glorified in their presence stuck in their minds as they went through the, the difficult times in life where they were thrown in jail and beaten and imprisoned when they didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. The glory of Christ is what allowed them to take their next step forward in a time of deep, deep uncertainty. And friend, I would submit to us that having a vision, not a creepy vision, not a, a, a scary vision, but having a vision or an understanding of the pureness and holiness and loveliness of Christ is something that will keep you taking the next step after the next step after the next step. Why? Not just because he's a distant figure who has nothing to do with your life, but because he's the very one who died in your place and who you will see face to face one day. And so the disciples saw a display of Christ's glory. It's interesting to note that earlier, when Christ asked, these same men, who do men say that I am? They said that some say you're Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And now here Christ is standing with Elijah and Moses in their presence. Again, there's a lot of speculation as to why these men were there on that day. Certainly we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of Moses 
and of all the, the prophets, all the prophecies that were given, they were all pointing in Christ. And so in my mind, the transfiguration and the appearance of Jesus talking with these men reveals the continuity of Scripture as a whole. So often people want to set at odds the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and though they might be in contrast sometimes, let us understand that contrast is often a beautiful thing. When we redid our, or when we built our house, Brianna chose paint colors, and uh, our island is a deep, deep blue, and the rest of the cabinets are a stark white. Those two colors are in contrast to one another, but they don't diminish one another. They point to the beauty of the thing as a whole, at least in our minds. You may look at our kitchen and say, well, who made those choices? And I just told you, Brianna did, so you can blame her. <laughs> uh, I wasn't allowed to have input in those conversations. No, I'm just joking. Is she up here? Oh, this is good. She's not even here. <laughs> but they're not set in opposition to one another. Christ didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill. Christ was and is the greater Moses. The, the law that was given on the mountain to Moses, Christ fulfilled every one of those things. And so as Jesus is standing there on the top of Mount Hermon, uh, that's what we think or understand or believe, there stands with him a representation of the law, and there stands with him a representation of the prophets. And as Christ in the middle, he understand this, he was not equal with them, but he was above them. And this passage again gets Peter into a little bit of trouble. Because he begins to speak, he begins to open his mouth in ways that he should not open his mouth. And he's rebuked, not this time by Christ, but he's rebuked from the voice that spoke from heaven, as in God the Father. But in this moment, they saw put on display the glory of Christ. And friend, I would ask you this morning, do you spend time dwelling on the glory of Christ on a daily basis? You say, well, I, I, can't, I don't have an illustrated Bible, so I can't look at an illustration. Oh, she is here. She's in the back. Never mind. Um, um, now I'm lost. <laughs> do, you, do you spend time on a daily basis beholding the glory of Christ? Isn't it true that the longer you're around somebody, the more complacent you get with them? And unfortunately for so many of us that the... The reality is that the longer we're saved, the more we grow fatigued with the idea of Christ being as beautiful as he is. We don't dwell on it as much because we understand it. We know how to put it into words. We know the right answers to give. But friend, I, I pray this morning that, that we would see once again the beauty of our Savior. That we would understand and see the depths that he went to die on the cross, not for his sins, but for our sins. That we would see the passages in the Bible where he says that he is the bread of life. He is the way. He is the door. That no man comes unto the Father but by him. And we would fall at his feet and, and, and bask in the glory that is shining around us as we look on our Savior. John Owen says this on the glory of Christ. By beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest to our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passions, and lusts. By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness, and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. For to be spiritually minded 
is peace. Do you want to know how you can have peace in this life? It's by dwelling on the glory of your Savior. When you go through a hard time, remember that he died for you to have strength to make it through that hard time. When you find yourself in sin, remember that he paid the ultimate sacrifice so that you could be forgiven again and again and again until you see him face to face. As you think about loneliness or depression or anxiety that begins to creep into your lives, understand that your Savior is one who has said he will never leave you nor forsake you. And so in your moments of despondency or despair, focus again on the glory of Christ. In the moments in your life where everything is going well, keep your focus on the person of Christ. Why? Because it ensures that we will continue to walk in the path that he wants us to walk. And that's exactly one of the reasons why Christ pulled Peter and James and John aside and brought them up to the mountaintop so that they could see with clarity the person who was eventually going to go and die for the sins of the world. And I believe one of the things that carried them on in their days of doubt was the vision that they had on the top of the mountain when they saw their Savior glorified. And so a display of glory. The second thing this morning is a deliberate refocusing. In verses 5 through 8, the passage continues and says, And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them and a voice that came from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. A deliberate refocusing. Think for a moment who these men would go on to be. Peter would be a prominent leader in the church. He, along with Paul, would really lead the charge with with their bold leadership in, in calling out the sins of both the Jews and the Gentiles and calling every religious group to lay down their religious rituals and focus on the person of Jesus Christ. We know that Peter did not do this perfectly, neither did Paul, but God certainly used them to be an instrumental tool in his hands to establish the local church. Who was it that preached on the day of Pentecost and 5,000 people got saved? It was Peter. It was Peter. So God was going to use him in a big way. What do we know about James? Well, James was the first martyr of the church. We can give Peter all the praise and glory we want, but understand this, James found himself in such a position that it meant his life was put on the line and his life was taken from him for believing and and putting forth this idea that Jesus was the Savior of the world. What do we know about John? Well, we know that John wrote the book of Revelation. Oh, fortunate! uh, John was so fortunate to have that vision. Well, where was he? He was exiled to an island. He was alone. He was imprisoned. He was boiled in, in oil or tar. Lived a horrible life. And yet to the end of his life, he did not renounce the name of his Savior. And so that gives us an idea of where these men were going. We know, as I said, they didn't get there perfectly. They stumbled and fell along the way. But something carried them on. Something continually push them to to follow in that direction. Each of their lives turned out very, very different, but Christ knew in this moment they needed something 
that would cause them to remain focused if their lives were going to have an impact for the sake of the kingdom. And so as we pick up the story again, we see that while all this is happening, Peter began to speak. Now, this sounds exactly like Peter. I love how Mark describes this. It says that that Elijah and Moses and Jesus was talking. And then what does it say in verse number five? And Peter answered. Understand, nobody probably asked Peter a question. Nobody addressed Peter. Peter was supposed to be standing off to the side, taking in everything that was going on around them. Nobody spoke to Peter, and Peter tells Mark, hey, say that I answered them. And Mark's probably like, but Peter, nobody spoke to you. And Peter's like, just put it in there. Just put it in there. It's going to make me look better than I I was looking in that moment. The Bible says that Peter answered them. He began to speak. He says, Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. This is an awesome experience. He's thinking in his mind about six days earlier when he, he, he heard that Jesus said that his kingdom was coming in power and in glory. And Peter in his mind is thinking, this is it. This is the establishment of the kingdom. This is the place that Jesus is going to rule and reign from. This is the, the, the people that Jesus wants to be surrounded with. Me and James and John and Elijah and Moses. Such a great group of guys. He says, it's good that we're here. So let's stop and let's build three tabernacles. One for you, Jesus. One for Elijah. And one for Moses. And understand, though Peter's ambitions sound good, they were very misguided. Because Jesus didn't come or bring them to this moment so that they would stay on the mountaintop away from everybody else. Jesus didn't bring them to this moment to establish his kingdom or a reign, physical reign and rule on this earth. Jesus brought them to this moment so they could again get a glimpse of who he was. Peter said, let's build the tabernacles. These were tents that would have been meant to be dwelt in. They they didn't want to take them down. That's where Peter wanted to stay. But how many of us realize today that the mountaintop experience that they had in this moment is not always where you live life? Would it be easier to stay on the mountaintop with Jesus and Elijah and Moses? Certainly it would have been. But who's going to do the work if they stay on the mountaintop? Who's going to do the work if they separate themselves from everybody who still needs to hear about Jesus? And so this is why our themes for the church are gather, grow, and go. Why? Because it's a glorious thing to gather, and Sunday morning gatherings are one of my favorite times. But the church is just not meant to gather with herself and and be inclusive only to those who have an understanding of Christ already, but we're called to reach out. And so as Peter is speaking, when he shouldn't have been spoken, or speaking, when he's saying things that he shouldn't have ever said, because it revealed again the, the misguidedness or misdirectedness of his own heart, we see that there's a deliberate teaching that takes place. And as Peter is going on and on about the, the tabernacles that they should build, how it's good for them to be here, how this is an awesome experience that they're having, the Bible says that he said this first off because he didn't know what to say. Another good lesson, when you don't know what to say, just keep your mouth shut, right? You won't be made an example if if you keep your mouth shut. He also spoke up because the rest of the disciples were afraid. Understand, it's okay to be 
in reverential fear in the presence of God. It's okay. It would have been okay for them to just stand there and take in what was happening before them in the moment. But because Peter spoke, because he started to lay out his plan instead of God's plan, because he was savoring the things of men over the things of God, God the Father spoke from heaven again and said, hey, shut up! And listen to my son. Peter, stop talking. Stop running off at the mouth. Stop telling me what your plans are going to be. Stop telling me what we should do. Listen to my son. Why? Because he was God in the flesh. Because he was indeed the savior of the world. He was the one that they should have been following. And yet Peter spoke up again. And I can't even imagine what it must have been like on that day to hear that voice come from heaven as, as a thundering boom saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. I imagine in some ways it put the disciples where they should have been at the beginning of the transfiguration. And where was that? On their faces. As they came to grips with the reality of who was standing before them on that day. And so Christ gives them, or God rather, gives them a deliberate teaching. When Peter's heart was misguided, when it was misdirected, when his words were not what they should have been, God speaks and refocuses his life, his heart, his mind on the person of Jesus Christ. And I would ask you today, friend, where is God deliberately teaching you in your life about an area of your life that is off course? We have a choice. And the choice is, are we going to listen or not listen? You see, Peter had a choice in this moment, right? He could have listened or he could have continued talking. Thankfully, from the way it reads in the text, Peter stopped talking and he began to listen. And sometimes I think we would, would be a better example to the world if we would do a little less talking and a little more listening, not to the world, but to our Heavenly Father who is speaking to us through His Word and through His Spirit. And so I would ask you again today, how is God redirecting or refocusing your heart and your mind? Where is it that you have gone off course? What thing in your life has become a distraction to you and it's left you floundering in your faith? You're still going through the motions, but you feel no advancement spiritually at all. You're still doing all the right things, but you feel disconnected from God to some degree. Can I encourage you today to go back to the glory of Christ, and then listen to the deliberate teaching from God the Father. And what is that teaching? Listen to Christ. Because listening to Christ and understanding who Christ is and basking in the glory of Christ will cause your life to become of use to the Master. It will mold you and make you into the, the vessel that God wants you to be so you can be poured out for the sake of the kingdom. And understand, that's exactly what happened to these men as they made it to the end of their lives. They were poured out for the sake of the kingdom. Oh, their, their lights were cut off, not because of sin, but their lives were cut off because of their sincere devotion to Christ. 
And as we talk about them 2,000 years later, we still learn from their example. So maybe you're here today like Peter and you're preoccupied with your own ambitions. Can I encourage you to focus on Christ? Maybe you've got a plan for your life and you know how it is going to end. Can I encourage you to, to not run it by Christ, but to surrender it to Christ? I think lots of times in our prayers, we do more of a running things by God than we actually do giving things to God, right? God, this is what's going on and this is what I need you to do. And if you could do it by 3.30 on Friday, that would be excellent. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Maybe a better way to pray would be, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but you do. And I submit myself to you wherever you lead me. God, help me to hear your words. Help me to follow your spirit. Help me to see your son. I give myself to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So they saw the display of glory and they heard the deliberate teaching. This is my beloved son, hear him. The Bible says in verse 8, when the voice stopped speaking, the cloud had gone away. They looked around and they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. And this is why I believe in part Moses and Elijah were there again to show the continuity of Scripture, but to show at the same time that everything was pointing to Jesus. Moses and Elijah didn't stay because Moses and Elijah weren't the point. Jesus was. There were no other prophets or Old Testament figures left over after the transfiguration. Why? Because Jesus was the point. Jesus, or God the Father, didn't speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved son, hear him, and Moses, and Elijah. He simply said, hear him. And so it's a call to each of us to refocus our lives on Christ alone, to have the things that we do and the standards that we have and the way that we live be directly from Christ alone and point back directly to him. God is reiterating again what he'd already spoken at the baptism of Christ, that Christ was the focus. He was the central figure of the scriptures, and he is the central figure for all of eternity. And so if there's one that we're going to listen to, who should we listen to? It should be Christ. We should keep our eyes on him and him alone. May we listen to the deliberate teaching of the Father. And then finally, we see the, the glory, display of glory, a deliberate refocusing, and then a divine teaching. The Bible says in verse 9, as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. Now, probably anybody who's had kids has taken a kid with them to a store at one point or another, and they behaved well, and you're like, okay, you can pick something out, Right? And you get in the car and they're eating it and you say these words, don't tell your siblings. (laughs) And what is on your kids' minds after you say that? Oh man, I can't wait to tell them what I got. How hard would it have been for Peter and James and John to come off the mountain? You know the other disciples were asking, where'd you guys go? What did you do? Why is your face glowing? Why do you look so funny? Like, 
What happened up there? Come on, guys, tell us. Oh, you know, we just, we just sat around and did some stuff and saw some things, but nothing, nothing of value. That would be a difficult thing. But unlike most of the characters in the New Testament where Christ said, don't tell anybody, and they went and told everybody, it appears that the disciples stayed true to the words of Christ. They didn't speak of the transfiguration until after the resurrection when Jesus had ascended, and then they made it known as Peter did in 2 Peter, where he talked about seeing the revelation of the, or the beauty and the glory of Christ. So Christ gives them a charge not to say anything about this until after he was risen from the dead. Verse 10, and they kept that saying, they, they did it, they obeyed the words of Christ, but they were questioning with one another what the rising of the dead should mean. So Christ says, don't tell anybody in verse 9 until I've risen from the dead. They obey the words of Christ, but in their minds they're confused because what does this mean that Jesus is going to rise from the dead? Now, did the Jews believe in a resurrection? Certainly they did. They absolutely did. You remember back to the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. What was the answer? Oh, we know you're going to raise him from the dead. They were believing. They were thinking towards the future. Again, misdirected and misguided, thinking that along with the resurrection would, would come the earthly kingdom, so to speak, where Christ would overthrow or God would overthrow all the powers that would be. But they, they, were, they understood this idea of a resurrection, but they didn't understand it in relationship to Christ. But they didn't say anything. They had the question, but they didn't say anything. Verse 11, it says, And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? So they had a question about the future, but they didn't ask it. They had another question about the future that they did ask. We understand that the Old Testament talks about this idea of somebody coming in the spirit of Elijah. We saw that in the end of Malachi. And who did we say that was pointing to? John the Baptist. That there would be one who would come in the spirit of Elijah who would, in reality, set things right. He would start the, the order of, of Christ coming onto the scene, Christ preaching the truth, Christ dying for our sins, and then Christ rising again. And so the scribes were misdirected, again, not to their own, own fault, because it does say that one's going to come in the spirit of Elijah, and the easiest way to interpret that would think that Elijah was coming again. Some people think this is talking about the two prophets that are going to come and stand in the end times, I don't think it's talking about that because of, again, interpreting Scripture by Scripture. It makes sense that the, the one who was promised to come in the spirit of Elijah would be John the Baptist because Christ even says that of him. But still in their minds, there's these questions. So they ask, what do the scribes mean when they say this? In verse 12, Jesus teaches them. He teaches them a truth that again, they would not fully grasp in this moment, but it would, it would stick in their hearts and minds in the days ahead. He says, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. And so Jesus says, the scribes are in part right, that first Elias must come, but I say to you that Elias or Elijah has already come. 
He already came and prepared the way for the one whom, whom people would set at naught or condemn or hold with contempt. He already came and did the work that he needed to do to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And since he has come, understand this, everything is set in motion to continue forward as the Bible has declared it would. They're waiting for Elijah to come and Jesus says, hey, you missed it. He already came. And because your hearts were hard, because your minds were distracted, you missed the reality of what the Bible was even speaking about. Elijah has come. And now it's time for the Son of Man to go through everything that was written about him. What does that mean? Well, if they were thinking, their minds would have gone back to Psalm 22. Or Isaiah 53. All that he would come. That he would be despised and rejected of men. That he would cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he would be led to the slaughter as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. That he opened not his mouth. That he would take the sins of the world upon himself. Because he alone is the one who could die for the forgiveness of those very sins. So as the disciples started out this day, following Jesus to the top of the mountain, they saw the display of Christ's glory. And then, as they had this deliberate refocusing by God the Father, listen to Christ, we must understand that this divine teaching is saying the same thing. You guys are focusing on everything that's around you and not the one who's in front of you. You're trying to understand everything as it was written according to your own minds instead of understanding everything as it was written in relationship to Jesus Christ. And friend, understand this. When we interpret the Bible apart from Christ... Do you know what happens? Cults and false religions get started. Why? Because it becomes about what you can do, how you can attain, how you can achieve, how you can become. But when we interpret the Bible according to Christ and in relationship to Christ, do you know what the Bible becomes? Who Christ is. What Christ has done. How Christ has made a way. And I believe in part that's the reason that Christ took Peter and James and John to the mountaintop on that day to refocus their lives on the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, where are we off course in our lives? Where have we gone astray, even in our own understanding of the Bible? Where have we taken a misstep to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think? Where have we elevated something above the person of Christ? You know what God the Father would say to us today concerning those areas of our lives? This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. This is my beloved Son. Follow Him. This is my beloved Son. Hold fast to Him. 
This is my beloved son, the one who died in your place, the one who rose again so that you could be forgiven. Hear him. And as Christ gives this divine teaching, it was to help them grow in their understanding. For when their understanding grew, so would their devotion to Christ. And every believer that that hears this passage today, understand this. If you want to grow closer to Christ, spend time relishing in his glory. Spend time at his feet, learning from him. Spend time communing with your Savior. And when your understanding grows, so will your devotion to him. Again, when we interpret the Bible apart from Christ, we start to think, as the disciples often thought, that everything is about the here and the now. But do you understand that everything is not about the here and the now? Everything is actually about the then. When we interpret the Bible according to our lives personally of what we're facing and what we're experiencing, and we add in Jesus to make what's wrong better, do you understand we preach a cheap Jesus? Because Jesus wasn't just given for the here and the now. Certainly that's a part of it. But Jesus ultimately came, why? So that we would have life and that we would have it more abundantly. And where and when will we have that true and abundant life? I would submit just when we see him face to face, that we know him fully, that we see him in all his glory, It's the time where we bow at his feet to worship in his presence. And so we know life is full of distractions. But by the grace of God, if this is our last day, help it to be our best day. If these are the last words that we speak, Help them to be words that point those around us to the beauty of the one who died in our place. The transfiguration serves as a reminder that Christ deserves our complete attention and devotion. And I would ask as we close today, would you consider who your attention is on and who your devotion is to? And if it's not Christ, May we repent of our waywardness and focus on him alone. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, we have referenced this several times, but understand Christ was sent by God the Father to be the Savior of the world. You say, I I agree, the world needs a Savior. Everything has gone so wrong. But understand, friend, he was sent to be a personal Savior. Certainly the world has gone wrong, and we can all agree with that. But Christ came to make known this reality that even we as individuals have gone wrong. That we have sinned, that our sin is not just against another person or in our own mind, but our sin is ultimately against God. 
And this sin that we have committed sets us at odds with God. It divides us. It separates us. But Christ came to fill that gap. He lived a perfect life and he died the death that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and experience the life that he is offering. And I wonder today, have you trusted Christ to be your savior? Have you received the eternal life that he gives? You may be here going through the motions and thinking, man, if I just could become religious, if I can just find a community of religious people, then my life will be fixed. But friend, understand apart from Christ, all religious activity is worthless. So I would ask you today, will you look to Christ to be your Savior? Will you look to Him to find true forgiveness and true life for both now and for eternity? Dave's going to come and we're going to sing a song. And as we sing, I'm going to make my way to the back. If you have questions about how Christ can be your Savior, I'd love to sit down and talk with you about that. For those of us who are believers, I pray that we would take time as we sing this song to reflect on our own lives and see where we have become distracted in the area of our devotion to Christ.